Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time of singing to you, Lord. We sang some very old songs there. Uh, great reminders that truth does not change with uh, modern influences. Uh, we thank you that we can stand on truth and sing truth, Lord. And we ask that you continue to bless our music ministry, Lord, here. Father, we thank you for the word of God and that we can trust it. It is unchanging. Uh, it is perfect. So it does not have to change with the culture of the times, Lord. And even as we study old passages from many, many years ago, we can pull this great truth and application out to apply to ourselves, Lord. So we pray you help us do that tonight. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Numbers chapter 7, we really get into what I have titled dedication and adornment. Uh, both are here in this text. And when we look at this text, just let me give you some background to kind of help set in it because I'll move through it fairly quickly here is that we find from Exodus 40 where the, the temple is completed. Remember, we were there in Exodus for quite some time through that. All the way through number 6, um, this is the description of what happens after the completion of the tabernacle. And we know that happened on the first day of the second year, uh, right up to where the census was taken. And there's about a month from the completion of that through the census. And, and the Bible teaches us that usually at the beginning of many of these chapters. But if you go all the way to Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, and we're going to get there in, hopefully in two weeks, um, we now see them getting ready to move, right? And, they, and it tells us the second year of the second month. And so this is how we understand how long a period times are, because the Bible tells us how long they've been out there. And the Bible says there in verse 11 of chapter 10 that the cloud lifts from over the tabernacle of testimonies and begins to move, and now they're headed for the, the border of the promised land. But what we have in chapters 7 and 9 um, is the beginning, and it bleeds all the way a little bit into 10, is, is, uh, is the last details of, of getting the tabernacle ready uh, for travel, for worship. God's going to supply things for it. Um, it's going to be dedicated. We're going to see gifts come to it. Uh, it's actually a very beautiful chapter we see here, particularly in verse 7. Now, it's difficult to know exactly when this happened. It could have happened right at the end of Exodus um, when the tabernacle was completed. It has some, when you read it, you kind of go, well, this happened somewhere in this time. Um, uh, but it set, where, where it set in the chronological order of the Bible is chapter 7 follows the Aaronic blessing that we studied a couple of weeks ago. Or, no, that was before I went to Egypt. <laughs> Sorry. That um, was more than that. Um, and so we see at the end of chapter 6 this great what we call the Aaronic uh, blessing or benediction, right? Remember, God told uh, Moses to say to Aaron, verse 23 of the previous chapter, and to the sons, say, say this to them, you shall bless them, the sons of Israel. And so we get this great blessing. We still use this today in a lot of ways. Um, the Lord bless you and keep you, and the Lord make his face shine, up, shine on you, and his grace uh, be gracious to you, and the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace uh, you remember I taught a whole sermon just on that, and that was just fun to look at that. But here, I, I think it's interesting how we have it here, how, how verse chapter 7 comes, because I think what's happening here is there's a response by the people to this Aaronic blessing. And these tribal gifts, there's 12 tribes, and they're bringing gifts, they're responding to this blessing of God and all that he's done. They're doing it as an expression of worship to God, and we'll see that it's missing one particular sacrifice, the things they bring, because it's not for repentance, it's for worship. And we'll see that as we unpack this text. Now, 
as we get into this, as always, even in the Old Testament, right in the middle of the, the Pentateuch here, we find truth and application for our lives, and I think you'll see that as we go through this. Let's look at some points quickly here, because I have to be done by seven, so, um, and then you've got to scoot out of here and come back in. All right. Number one, God supplies what people need for worship. Uh, and, uh, I, and this, you know, I hope you can see the application as it comes through here. Let me read these first nine verses and then uh, give you some commentary on, on this. Now, on the day that Moses had finished the setting of the tabernacle, so you kind of see this is all part of that month-long finishing of the tabernacle, he anointed it and consecrated it with all the furnishings and the altar and all its utensils, and he anointed them and consecrated them also. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of the father's houses, often referred to as princes or leaders, made offerings. And they were the leaders of the tribes. They were the ones who were over the numbered men. So that takes us back to Numbers chapter 2 when he numbered all of the tribes, right? Who was ready to be able to go to war. Verse 3. When they brought their offerings before the Lord, six covered carts, twelve oxen, a cart for every two of the leaders, from every two of the leaders, and an oxen from each one of them, Then they presented them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Accept these things from them, that they may be used in the service of the tent of meetings. And you shall give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. So Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service. Four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merai according to their service, under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Remember, that son oversaw all of the, all of the movement, the tearing down, all, all of that tabernacle getting moved and re-put up. But he did not give any to the sons of Korath, because theirs was the service of the holy objects, which they carried on their shoulders. Now, as you read these first nine verses, you really appreciate the significance of what's taking on here. Um, See, we know that Numbers 4, God gave direction for how to dismantle this thing, how to redo it, how to carry it, how to uh, re-put it back up. He gave all those instructions. And you notice that the Korathites were to carry those most sacred items. Remember that? They're carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the Gold of Candlesticks, so forth. They're carrying those things. But in that chapter, it did not tell us how the rest of the Levites were to carry all these parts, right, that make up the rest of the tabernacle. And so this passage helps us understand that. Now, the chapter clarifies that the Gershonites were, were those responsible for curtains and some of the less heavier stuff. So you see they get two, ox, you know, two carts and four oxen. Um, but the, the Marites, they, they were responsible for much heavier loads. We saw that back in, uh, early on in, Levitic, in Leviticus as we were in there. And they get four carts and eight oxen. But the Korahs... They, they didn't receive any auctions because uh, they're going to bear that. They're going to carry them, right? Remember, they were given poles. The all instruction was the poles would go through the, the eyelets, the ringlets, for carry the ark and all of the different furniture that went into the most holy place. So um, this first section describes now the generosity of these tribes. And I, and I think this is promoted by God. God always promotes it. You know, God gives us everything good, comes from him above, and and he moves with us to give, right? Even us now today, when we give and we tithe and offer our gifts to the Lord, that's the Lord moving in us and us listening to him and giving it. So I think that's what's happening here. And Moses, he's in commanded. Notice here, he's, in, he's commanded to receive these gifts. Verse 5, 
He's commanded to take these gifts, receive them, accept them, God said, to bring them in, and they're for the purpose of the tabernacle. Now you have this tabernacle that's going to be the center of, of all of the worship of the nation of Israel, and it takes a lot of things to make that thing run. And so God has put upon the hearts of these leaders of these tribes to bring all these gifts to them to get this ministry really started. And I think this is evidence of just the inspiration and the control of the Spirit in people's lives to, to cause people to give and to, to do things. See, someone once said this once to me. They said, I, I believe God just enlarged my heart in an area where it was small in so I would meet a need. Is God enlarging your heart to meet needs? Uh, and I think that's what he did here with these, uh, these tribal leaders and these different tribes to give. And so uh, they, they give these great gifts here. And, and the way God designed the tabernacle and the sacrificial system and the worship here, um, it needed preparation. It needed grain and it needed utensils and it needed things uh, to make it work. And so God laid on the hearts of these men. Uh, and you go, well, where did they get these things? Well, you remember the Bible said in Exodus, when they left Exodus, they plundered, excuse me, when they left Egypt, they plundered Egypt. So they had oxen, and, and remember, they're a shepherding livestock type of people anyway. They had carts, they had, uh, they had gold and silver. We know they did that because they built a golden calf and so forth. So they had the means. God had given them the means graciously. You think about that. It wasn't the gold and stuff. They, they, they did not have that. God gave that to them, and they gave a portion of that back to him. So this is, this is good instruction here. Second thought. The nation of Israel responds to the grace of God. Look at verses 10 and 11 here. These are fascinating verses. The leaders offered the dedication offering for the altar when it was anointed. So the leaders offered their offering before the altar. So you can see the scene. The altar's in the center of the courtyard. They bring it there. All these gifts are coming there. They're setting them to the side of the altar. This is where they want to honor God with these gifts. Verse 11, Then the Lord said to Moses, Let them present their offerings, one leader each day, for the dedication of the altar. Now, we're not, not totally sure of how these offerings were given but it's possible that they, they loaded them in these carts and each of them brought these things. But we do know they did it in 12 consecutive days. There's, a, there's very clear in verse 11 that there's this formal presentation of each group, each tribe formally presents their gift. And God accepts that and they do it for day after day after day. And that's why this chapter is so long because as we'll see there's a repetition of each of the 12 tribes. And the first one starts with Gershon, um, uh, uh, Joshua's grandfather, uh, that we see him come. But, but remember, they're still, at the, they're still at the base of Mount Sinai. Um, they're, they're right there. God has been up on that mountain, and Moses has been up there with him. It's been an incredible event. He's been giving them the law, instructions for the Levite tribe and, and the organization of all of that. And so they're still at the base of that mountain. And all this is taking place. But as they're just about coming to a completion, the people now want to honor God. They want to respond to God's grace. And I think you see these tribes reacting to the provision God has given to them. You know, they, they have not forgotten, though they seem to pretty quickly here at times, they remember God took them out of destitute slavery, right? They stay where they are, the nation dies, and the seed of Christ with it. 
God rescued them out of there. And so now they've seen what God is doing. They're in a good place here, spiritually speaking. And they're reacting to God and reacting to this Aaronic blessing of the, of the chapter before. Now, the Lord has displayed his grace. And even though they're a sinful people, he's displayed grace to them. Not only bringing them out of slavery, but think about this. He's now made a way for them to enter into his presence and be right with him through atoning work of the blood of the bull or blood of the lamb, right? Again, it's all pointing towards Christ. But he's provided, and that's pure grace, and they know it, and they're responding to this grace that God has given. And they're also responding to the clear testimony that, that God was with them. And there's, there, there's the Shekinah glory coming down and filling this temple. The clouds moving along and, and, and going to move and they're going to follow them. There's a response that God has not abandoned them as, as they're with them. I think that's an amazing thing to think through. And so this is what's, I believe, motivating this gift that is coming. Over and over we see, even in the Old Testament, God is pictured full of grace and compassion, isn't he? He resides with sinful people. He makes a way for people to come to him. He's rich in mercy. He's tender towards his people. He's full of love despite sinful behavior. He keeps loving and keeps drawing people to himself. And I think that's what's motivating this. Now, I believe this section of Scripture displays um, a real spontaneous also response of grateful hearts. They see the goodness of God and they want to respond. And I think that's what happens to us today, right? The grace of God motivates Christians to give. I hope it motivates you to come to church. It motivates you to give of your tithes and offerings. I I hope it motivates you to serve and find somewhere in the church that you see needs and meet them. It it has to be the grace of God. Otherwise, it turns into duty, doesn't it? And I I talked about that in the last last service, the difference between duty and delight. We're thankful, and and it drives our service. We're grateful for what God has done. And I believe there's a clear point here when people can grasp and understand God's blessing in your life you not only want to give spontaneously, but you want to give generously. And, and wait till you see this, gifts that are given. This is lots of, lots of money, really. I mean, when you look at what they give, when it comes down to uh, the plates and stuff that are made of gold and so forth. So uh, I, I think there's great generosity here. But I think about us. I mean, they're, they're on the other side of the cross, Right? There's, there's a clear understanding of the way to get to God through the blood of the Lamb, but that has to be done over and over and over, right? But we have the gospel, so I think that, that really creates a real joyful hearts in us and should create a joyful recognition that God has come to us, right? Not us going to God. God has come to us through His Son, has provided a way for me to have an eternal relationship through one sacrifice, the final Lamb, and I think that motivates. And, and let me encourage you, as you give to the church and to ministry and so forth, let the gospel drive that. Uh, it'll be so much easier to give, so much, uh, you'll, you'll have a, a, a great joy in giving uh, when the gospel drives those things. Now, when, you, when we see the nation, and this isn't the first time they've done this, right? In chapter 36, uh, Moses puts out an appeal, right? He says, look, God's given us this instruction for this tabernacle, and we need a whole lot of stuff. And they brought it, didn't they? You remember back in Exodus 36? They brought it. In fact, they had to cut them off. They brought so much. And we see that several times in the history of Israel where there's a need that is 
uh, met and or need to be met, and they bring it in great supply. And so we see God do that. Um, in the New Testament, I, I think I see some of that. I was looking at First uh, Thessalonians today, and when you when you look at that church, they were they were a really special church. They they sought through the things of the Word of God. We it's one of those it's one of those churches we don't see a. I don't know. There's actually any rebuke in that book. I mean, it, it is. It is a book that really is an encouragement, but I think if the, the thing you do see is for them to excel still more. Now, the Macedonian church was in need, and so Paul goes after the Thessalonica church to have them give more. In fact, he tells them in chapter 4 that they ought to walk pleasing the Lord and then keep excelling. And then when you get down to verse 10, he says this. I want you to hear this verse. For indeed you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. So he's saying, you have done this. You have, you've met needs of people you don't even know. But then he says, but I urge you, brethren, to, to go and give still more, to excel still more. When you drop into 2 Corinthians 8, there's a debate of who he's referring to, but I think, I think he's referring to the Thessalonica church um, as one of the group um, that he's talking about. He uses them as an example to probably one of the most wealthy churches that's not giving. So in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 5 to 1, he says this. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy, this is, he's talking about, I believe one of them would be Thessalonica, out of their deep poverty, overflowing in their wealth of their liberality. So they have deep poverty, but they're overflowing in wealth with liberal, I mean, liberality, right? They're giving even in poverty. I testify that not according to their ability and beyond that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Listen to this. This is what they did. Begging us with much urging for favor of participation. I've, I've said this to some guys who say, you know, I just want to, I want to do this, you know, we want the church to help, or I don't want you to help. I said, wait, wait, what, what are you trying to do? What are you robbing our joy? Come on, let us in on this. We want to help. We want to be a part of this mission outreach or whatever it is, right? We're begging to participate in this. And I think this was Thessalonica did. And when you experience the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you know he's rescued you from eternal damnation, you don't, you're never going to get what you deserve, there should be this outflowing of desire to serve him. Knowing that he knows your needs, he can meet them. And what joy comes from that? And I think that's what they're responding to, particularly after that ironic blessing. Third thought. Um, our attentive Heavenly Father takes careful note of our worship. Now, I want to just read 12 through 17, but this whole section goes all the way down through verse 88. But look with me through 12, for 12 through 17. Now, the one who presented his offering on the first day was Nashon, that's his, Joshua's grandfather, the son of Abinadad, the tribe of Judah. And his offering was one silver dish whose weight was 130 shekels. That's a lot. <laughs> I'll give you some, some, some numbers on that in a minute. One silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekels of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for the grain offering, one gold pan, or maybe spoon, your Bible, Bible might say, of ten shekels full of incense. One bull, one ram, one male lamb, one year old, one burnt off, uh, for a burnt offering, one male goat for, for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offering, two oxen, five rams, 
Five male goats, five male lambs, one year old. This was the offering of Nation, the son of Abinadad. Now, as I think about this, I, I, I thought about the importance of, of what they were doing here. Uh, as you go through this, if you've ever read through numbers, you can get hung up here because it'll just repeat that 12 times, right? You see that in the text, see how long the text is? It's, it just repeats those same things here. Uh, but I want you to think about this for just a moment. This is what, where my mind went today. God's word records each and every one of them. Though they're identical, he could have said, and the next guy did the same thing, and the next guy did the same thing, and the next guy did the same thing, etc., etc., etc. Right? That's how we would do, right? I'm not going to list all that stuff out 12 times. And what I believe God is doing is he's showing us that he takes note of people who give. He takes note of, of what people are doing. He sees these individuals, in this case tribes, but there's an individual that's representing that tribe coming forward. And I think our Heavenly Father, and I don't think I know, our Heavenly Father receives gifts from his children. And he does not lump them all together like, oh, that riverbend, that's a good group over there. No, he sees us individually participating with his work when we give. And I, and I think that's why this repetition is here. It's to teach us a lesson. And I think he goes even farther. He acknowledges them. Every man here who's the leader, the prince of the leader of this group is acknowledged by name uh, and, and his family name, right, is even in it. One by one expressing their personal pleasure and gratitude towards God and God is recognizing each one of these. Now, just as God, God sees... Um, us doing those things, I, I, I got thinking about this. I said, God, you are just a personal God, aren't you? He did not wipe out at the cross in a blank statement all the sins of Riverbend members. He wiped out my sins, and Connors, and Fred's, Dave's, and so forth. And that's what he does. He's personal, isn't he? He's our God. When you witness to people with other faiths and, uh, or, or even agnostic or atheist people, they just have no idea that God is personal. The Bible says in Colossians 2.14 that he canceled out the certificate of death consisting of the degrees against us. Me and you. He canceled those out. He knew us before the foundations of the world. He drew us to himself. I mean, think about that. And then Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 and following says this, For the Lord is not unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards others in his name. He doesn't forget that stuff. And so as I look at this long list, and I, as I first read it, I go, Lord, how am I going to preach this? <laughs> this is just repetition over and over. I should just read it to him. And then I more and more I thought, more and more read, I thought, oh Lord, you are showing how personal you are. You know these people by name. You see their gifts. I, I don't think that's new just to the New Testament. I think that's Old Testament. We see it here. The writer of Psalms 149, who we don't know is, what is who it is, but it says this, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song and his praise to his congregation of his godly ones. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the sons of Zion rejoice in the king. Let them praise his name with dancing and sing praises with him with a timbre and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. Isn't that beautiful? 
We don't have this God who we're trying to appease every day. I think there's a lot of people who think that, right? Oh, God's mad at me. This happened to me. I got this or those. God takes pleasure in his people. Isn't that beautiful? God takes pleasure in his people. And then how much more greater understanding do we have of that fellowship under the new covenant, right? I mean, we, that, everything's picture, everything's flowing to the cross. And from the cross this way, we know how personal it is. He knows from the foundations of the world. Our, our name is written on his hands. I mean, it, it all starts to become very personal as Christ dies for me and my sins. John, as he opens his first epistle, he says this, verse 3, We have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. But then this is what he says. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Our koinonia, this tremendous unity that we have, is not just with one another, but it's with the Father and the Son. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that family? Isn't that beautiful? Now, back in verses 12 and to 17 here, I just want to note the description of this because this was not some lightweight, oh, I have a few extra dollars in my pocket, I'll put it in the offering plate. This was calculated. And this was motivated by God. And it's, and it's substantial, right? And as we look at this, each leader gives, you notice in the text here, gives this silver dish weighing about three pounds. You can imagine what the value of this thing. As well as they give this silver bull weighing another two pounds, somewhere roughly around there. And then this pan, some call it a spoon, it, it's another four ounces. And it's gold. The dishes and the bowls are full of mixture of flour and, and the spoon contains incense. I mean, these are valuable things out in the desert. And, and I think we have to note here that they were primary ingredients to the grain offerings uh, described in, in Leviticus 2. So these are important things to get this sacrificial system going there as they're out in the middle of nowhere in the desert. So God's motivating them to give. And, and then notice the animals, the list of animals. It's just amazing, isn't it? I don't have time to read it again, but um, these are all the animals that are part of the usual sacrifices. The burnt offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, they're all labeled and, and named in there. These are all mentioned in Leviticus 3 and 4. Um, and the gifts are significant, right? They're brought to this altar, which is the focus, right? I'm going to come to this altar. That's where God is going to receive my sacrifice and forgive my sins. Everything's dropped off there. That's the focus of, of the tabernacle is right there. And even though the Holy of Holies is where, Christ, where God resides on, between the cherubim there, that focal for them is in the middle of that courtyard where the altar is, and that's where they're bringing these gifts. Well, one last thought here is notice that there is no guilt offering. Every offering is lifted except the guilt offering, and I think that should be noted, because they are not coming at this point because of sin. They're not coming seeking repentance. They're coming to worship. They're coming to worship God. And they, they've been motivated to bring these things and to donate these things, to give them of, of a free will to the Lord. And so there is no guilt offering there. Most of the time, we come to God, or at least we should, I want you to think about this, most of the time we come to God with adoration. 
There are certainly times we come in repentance. We come, we come dealing with things in our lives before the Lord. Yes, that's very true. But most of the time, as Christians, we come in the presence of the Lord with adoration. Dear Lord, it's good to talk to you this morning. I want to thank you for taking me through another night's rest. I want to thank you for the food you've given us for today. I want to thank you that I know you're with me, even though it may be a difficult day. See, see we come that way. We come with adoration. And that's the, most of the time how we come. Now, there are times, oh, Lord, I've, I, have, I have sinned against you. I've sinned against your truth, Lord. I, I need your forgiveness. I know I've received that through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I come to, to repent of that. But most of the time, brothers and sisters, we come in great adoration to the Lord. Verses 40, excuse me, 84 through 88, after each of the 12 leaders, and you'll, you can see down there, I just, I mark the leader and the tribe. So the next one is Issachar and forward, so forth, and it goes on down, following the same order of Numbers chapter 2. And you finally end um, uh, with Naphtali. Um, in his presentation. But verses 84 through 88 is really a summary of the gifts given of these 12 tribes. And, and, and again, I want to say this again. This allows the tabernacle and this Levitical tribe to storehouse things, to, to get the sacrificial system, the ingredients they need for the worship of Yahweh. It gets them going here. But don't miss. I, I want to just hit this point one more time. Don't miss the attentiveness, attentiveness, attentive, attentiveness of God to note these things. He sees when you give. And he notes those things. Oh, last thought here. Ooh, hurry. The blessing of the presence of the Lord and his word. Look at verse 89. I love this verse. Now, when Moses went into the tent of meetings to speak with him, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Testimony from between the two cherubim, and so he spoke to him. Well, here, this verse brings, I think, this, just the supreme point of the whole situation or the whole section together, right? It's the presence of God. And it's just not the presence of God, it's the voice of God. It's the word of God. He's with the nation at this point. He, he has caused this nation to come to him and worship. This living God is with them. He's now speaking. The living God is speaking to them. And when Moses enters this most holy place, the divine voice of God was above the mercy seat, the art of the Ark of the Covenant, and he was speaking to him. He's there with his people. Sinners, God is in the midst of them. And the tabernacle has has been completed, it's been dedicated and consecrated here, and everything's been done God's way, how God wanted it done, and he's provided fellowship with the nation, and the nation has responded by bringing these gifts, and now their mediator, the one and only mediator, Moses, a very type pointing towards Christ, is now in the presence of God, and he hears his voice. But think about this, brothers and sisters, we, we have the same thing, don't we? The Spirit of God, think about this, has taken up resident, residence in your life. Yes, that's profound, isn't it? God the Spirit, nothing less than God the Father, God the Son, has taken up resident in the believer's life. And then he gives us his word. 
He speaks to us. I mean, I couldn't help but just meditate on that today, the blessing, the significance that the church has. Because now not only do we have the, the presence of the Lord dwelling in us, in his word, we have the mediator, the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who goes before us. He's the one who took his own blood into the holy place and made us right with the Father. He intercedes with us day and night for us. And we have his presence. I guess my thoughts did have to turn. It doesn't take long, as we know, that they get to the border and they reject God's word. And eventually, over time, Israel loses the presence of the Lord and they reject his word. They go hand in hand. And I think that's significant today. Unfortunately, I think the church today, as we continue to read some of the stuff that's going on, there's a rejection of the word today. They reject God's creative order. They, they, they don't want what God says to do. And so I think many churches now, the light or the lamp has gone out and they have been seduced by worldly persuasions, by modern society. And it causes them to depart from a biblical foundation and, and they find themselves without the light, without the word of God being effective and really... They have no doctrine of adornment. And what happens is, instead of worshiping God, they begin to worship the creature instead. And the creature's rights and what the creature wants become superior to that of the creator. And that's what happened to the nation of Israel. They wanted to be like the rest of the nations. And it all started with wanting to have a king. And problem after problem came with that. And pretty soon they wanted to worship like the rest of the nations. And so the answer to this is worship God. Put him first. Die to self. The doctrine of adornment, it, adornment is, is, should be our proper focus. We adore our God and Savior. And that assures us that he's with us and his presence is with us and his word is rich and vibrant and alive to us. And it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Well, that's chapter 7. I think it's a fascinating chapter. I have spade read through it many times, reading through the Bible, and uh, never really contemplated the depth of it. I hope you were encouraged by that. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask you to go out these doors, come back in around those, and sign back in. And we'll do that as quickly as can, and we'll start our family meeting. Father, thank you for, thank you that you let us adore you. Most of the world will never adore you. Oh, they'll sing songs over this next month. They'll sing great songs, songs that have such deep truth, but never adore you. Lord, help us never fall into that trap. Oh, help us to always be ready to give to you and adore you and let your grace and your gospel motivate our lives, both giving and serving. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do this for our glory and you'd help us in this. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We know that you reside within us, your presence is with us, and you've given us a great hunger for your word. Lord, he would help us uh, to walk with you, Lord, so we would never let that lamp go out here, Lord, to continue to use us in mighty ways, Lord. Give you all the praise and the glory, Lord. Now, as we go to our family meeting, we pray that you would just strengthen each and of the men that will be sharing, Lord, and give us good ears to hear and good biblical thinking as we think through uh, all kinds of things that will be presented, Lord. 
I thank you for this family here in Jesus' name. Amen.